Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's Sam Bruce, joined as ever by Christy Doran on what is a, um, a pretty good Monday to be an Australian rugby fan for a change. Uh, not before time, two wins uh, for the Brumbies and the Waratahs in round 11 of Super Rugby. Uh, the Reds and Force also going very close and of course uh, the Rebels beating Moana Pacifica. So uh, on the balance of things, Christy, um, when you and I have spoken uh, over the last two years doing this pod, um, this would have to be right up there with uh, with the uh, the happiest of Mondays. Well, yeah, it, it had to be like that because the sun is shining today in Sydney and it's the first time I can remember in a long time that that's been the case. I was away for the one week that it, there was a bit of sunshine. What a weekend. Um, it started, I think, really with the resistance that the Western Four showed and they probably should have picked that game against the Blues over in Perth. But that that atmosphere, the the way that they came out of the blocks, um, the, the Waratahs on the Saturday afternoon, going into another victory with the Rebels and, yes, against Moana Pacifica, but... You know, you still got to win the game. And then the Brumbies closed it out with a really emphatic, emphatic way. And three wins, huge result. The Fijian Drua in front of a packed crowd in, the, in Suva. Awesome for the game, badly needed. Um, and the first time since 2012 that Australian rugby sides have had a positive aggregate against New Zealand opposition over a weekend. They were plus 17. Previously, that happened only against two sides when... I think it was the Reds and the Rebels played both the Chiefs and the Crusaders. Now, that was when, you know, South Africa are playing clearly. So you can't just measure it up against five straight opposition or six in the case now. But that's an outstanding result for the game. And there's many reasons for that. And I'm sure we'll dive into a, a few of those over the next half now. You mentioned there, mate, that it's uh, historic, I guess, both for what we saw in, in Suva and the scenes over there. And we'll come to that. But also... How important that weekend for Super Rugby Pacific? We know this competition has only signed off for two years between New Zealand Rugby and Rugby Australia and um, the, all the uh, the bartering and, and bargaining that went on to, to get it across the line um, for these two years. Um, what is it going to mean that the fact that the Aussie sides uh, have already eclipsed their, their two wins from last year through two weeks uh, as you mentioned, the force um, probably should have won, really had, I think, about 26 phases there at the finish against the Blues. Yeah. Um, and the Reds had, you know, had every chance to, to beat the Chiefs as well. Now, clearly it's only one weekend, but you've got to start from somewhere. And I'm sure New Zealand officials will um, will probably be, you know, quietly happy themselves, given what we saw over the weekend and the contests. All the games were contests. and. That's what uh, any sporting competition worth its salt really needs is that, you know, fans are going to get behind it. They want to see games where not only their team are in the hunt, but right across the board, they switch on and they see a good 80 minutes of rugby. Yeah, you, you bang on. I, you know, I had a, a phone call with one person yesterday afternoon who said, I wonder what Brent Impey's thinking at the moment. Uh, only two super rugby clubs uh, for, for you, Australia. Thank you very much. But, um, you know, there's a few there's a few factors in this, and I think undoubtedly it's been helped um, by the draw to begin with. Um, you know, if you reflect on last year and you go, well, why did the Brumbies and the Reds, who were the only two sides really that were competitive, why did they struggle? When one, the slow start from the Rebels against the Highlanders off the back of their Super Rugby success, we've spoken about that in the past. I've been very critical about how they were managed. Yes, you can celebrate, but no, you can't 
you know, affect the next week's performance and be on the back foot immediately. But number two, the Brumbies um, were injury-plagued, lost half their forward pack, and then they had to play three weeks in a row in New Zealand. You compare that to this year round and you've gone an entire Super Rugby round in Melbourne, followed by home games across the board for the Force, for the Rebels, for the Waratahs, Reds and Brumbies. Um, so that, that's been a huge turnaround. Um, a couple of players uh, being rested by the Crusaders' help. But you know what? You think about where, who the Waratahs were missing too. Lockie Swinton, uh, they were missing both their starting hookers. The hookers, yep. Um, uh, there was one, Will Harrison has a, has a season-ending injury as well. You know, that's four players that you've taken out of your 23, three of them who are starting players. You can't just, you know, say that put it down to the fact that Richie Malunga wasn't playing at the Crusaders didn't turn up. They weren't there from a mental perspective, but they also weren't there physically and, that, and they got beaten out of the out of the blocks and fair play to the Waratahs because they were clearly up for it. They had spoken about the fact that they were playing with house money um, and, and the fact that they had nothing to lose and they've come out and they've shocked the competition and probably the world. And people, you know, might get onto you on Twitter and from other codes particularly and go, sparks the nation, what are you on about? Well, actually, no, this is the first result that I can remember in a long time where you've gone, wow, not only are the Waratahs on an upward curve for those that know the game, but secondly, hang on, Super Rugby's still being played and rugby's still being played and you've just beaten the top Kiwi side. It was a huge result and it's one that they can build their foundations on going forward. It might not mean that they're making the semifinals and I dare say that they won't this year. But for a young side with a lot of 22, 23, 24-year-olds, it's a hell of a result and it can only be a good thing for the Wallabies to get one over New Zealand opposition with the likes of Cody Taylor in there. Um, we saw the return of, of, of the centre, Jack Goodhue, uh, Severu Reese. These guys are going to be featuring for the All Blacks later on, so it's a massive result. It really was, and uh, I'm going to give myself a bit of a wrap here because I took the $13 on offer with Sportsbet. Uh, uh, a well, cheeky on that in the punters club. So very happy about that victory. Um, but you're right there, mate, about this being a momentous win for the Waratahs and talking with the other guys in the media box, um, just going through from one to 15, there wasn't one guy really that had a bad game. It was a complete team effort. You mentioned the two hookers being out. Uh, Mahe Vailano comes in and, and carries with, with authority, had a little bit of um, issue at, at set piece, um, perhaps alongside Angus Bell, who was repeatedly, uh, penalised there at scrum time, but the lineout was solid even with, you know, a smaller back row having both Charlie Gamble and Michael Hooper there. Uh, Jed Holloway continues to impress. He got up and and challenged a few balls uh, at lineout time. Um, and they just, as you said, they came out of the blocks. They flew out of the blocks with that try through uh, Dylan Peach and off the back of Tane Edmed's run from the scrum. And um, it was just a brilliant afternoon, early evening at, uh, at Leichhardt Oval. I cruised in um, just as the the curtain raise was finishing up and, you know, you just had the feeling that it was going to be a special night. And I think uh, certainly um, the way the place was rocking the grandstand, there was a standing ovation at halftime from uh, in the grandstand there, which, you know, Tigers fans are a bit wary of given they gave a, a famous uh, or an infamous standing over a trial game and, and then proceeded to have a pretty uh, ordinary year last year. But um, yes, this was a crowd that was up and about. They were fully behind the Waratahs. 
um, and they were repaid with a, a very, very strong performance, albeit one that they really had to scramble to get over the line against a, a 13-man Crusaders. But they can do that to you. We know the, the talent they've got in the, in the outside backs. Um, a huge moment. Um, and even uh, Darren Coleman then quipping, well, we might, uh, we might cancel that, uh, the return to the, the Sydney Football Stadium because it was the best atmosphere, Christy, I tell you, since the 2014 final. Yeah, and that's it's a really interesting one, and it's a big. Um, uh, we we know the contractual contractual issues that New South Wales Waratahs have. We know that you know what Queensland the Reds have with Suncorp Stadium, but it's really important, isn't it, to sh- share the love, spread it, take it to suburban grounds at times, which can, with 12,000 people there, have a really great atmosphere and a good product. Because you compare that to what you had seen. And, and, and for those, the casual observer who's not particularly interested when they're seeing a, a ground which is three-quarters full empty, um, it, it doesn't look great. And then you compare it to perhaps the what's happening on the field and, you know, quite possibly and, and, and what we've seen over the last few years particularly is the Australian side not going particularly well. So, you know, you turn off, you, you flip between switch, um, between channels if you're the casual observer. Um uh, so yeah, really important. And Jake Gordon said, you know, I hope you had a uh, had a good game, um, enjoyed the experience. We need you to come back in two weeks' time. You know, Darren Coleman said uh, after he said, let's make this one a quick one. I've got a few beers to sink. But um, he he says, you know, we're a team that's trying. Uh, we can. We're a team that you can support, and we're we're doing everything we can. Now, those are sorts of some of the fundamentals that you go, this is a non-negotiable. But often in sport, that's not the case, that you see a side put in an 80-minute effort and they really look like they're giving everything. So for a, for a supporter that, that might have be a, a loose fan or a passionate fan, that's what you want to see. Um, you're right about highlighting a couple of players. I thought Mahi uh, Bailanu, the, the hooker, was outstanding. He... You know, in terms of being able to um, look like a ready-made replacement, he's just looked at. He looked at the part, got over the game line really, really well, which is an important thing. To beat a, a New Zealand in the confrontational aspects was massive. He, he's got a fascinating story too because he, he followed Coleman, you know, he was out there with the Rats, then to Gordon, and he gets taken as well to, to the LA Gilatini's he ends up at the Waratahs. Stephen Boyles is a big fan of him. But he looks like a bloke that has just played himself into a regular super rugby, uh, maybe not starting side, but into a 23. And that's great for the overall depth of, of, of your squad. Um, Dylan Peach had his best game. And it's no surprise that he actually looked like he belonged after scoring a try just a couple of weeks ago. He, he's a confidence player. Um, Mark Nawanga Nidawasi. I'm glad that that actually rolled off the tongue, but he he too is starting to look like he belongs defensively. He's starting to 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 not just to be there, but to turn up to look like he's going to make the tackle because he was just a you know a walking turnstile in previous years. Um, great offensively, but couldn't defend. So lots of um, encouraging things to take forward from this TARS. And, yeah, we're talking about New South Wales, but this is the real big upset of the weekend. Um, and, it's, and it's really the springboard for hopefully what is to come for Australian rugby. Yeah, two weeks they're back at uh, Leichhardt Oval 
uh, for the Hurricanes. Uh, so I'd urge anyone who, uh, who watched on from home on the weekend to get out for that one and, and the Blues as well, I think, in, uh, in the final round. Yeah, and before we go, Brucey, really interesting late in the game, probably, what, 15 minutes to go, Hamish uh, Dalzell, the, uh, the Crusaders' replacement lock, back rower, um, two incidents that are really fascinating to look on from, from a judicial point of view, but also just from an officiating point of view and where the game is at, basically. Two almost identical tackles or identical results in the sense that first up, Tate Edmund gets smack bang, smoked in the head by his opponent from the, the forward being pretty upright, not going low, really. And, yes, apparently there was mitigating circumstances by the late movement from Edmund. But then shortly after, minutes later, seconds later, Michael Hooper gets clocked. Yeah, as I say, almost identical circumstances. Upon reflection, Sam, was Ben O'Keefe wrong? Did he get wrong in the first instant? Um, and, And if not... Is that how the game must be officiated going forward? Because it seemed incredibly blurry, the lines there. It was, man. And I certainly didn't think the first incident was worthy of a red. I thought it was somewhere between a penalty and a yellow. Probably, you know, the way we've seen it refereed this year, probably a yellow. So to not have any uh, sanction there whatsoever, I was, you know, reasonably confused by that decision from Ben O'Keefe. I thought the second one, of Dalziel's was, you know, as cut and dried red card as, as you're ever going to see. Um, now, interesting listening to Scott Robertson um, when he was asked about that and, and he kind of, you know, I, I guess gave a, a typically, you know, a, a, a response you'd expect from a coach that doesn't want to completely throw his charge under the bus, but then did admit fully that Dalziel has some issues with his tackling technique. And, and that was clear from the second one where Hoops peeled around uh, from the back of the line out there, um, a little step. And at no stage, as he said, did Dalzell drop his body height. He collects Hooper um, head on head and, you know, falls away himself. But it really rocked Michael Hooper. He was taken from the field. Um, amazing to see him front up for, for Sports Sunday on Channel 9 yesterday morning. Um, but I think uh, he actually said that his head might be feeling a little better given some of the parting that uh, went on from the Waratahs boys uh, a few late WhatsApp messages uh, apparently on the early morning of Sunday. But you're right. Uh, I mean, it just adds to our confusion really, doesn't it? And you and I are watching, you know, most games every weekend and and feeling as though we've got a, a pretty good grasp on things and, and how it's being officiated. But you have uh, an incident like that and even Friday night, with the Reds uh, and Chiefs game, uh, which I think Paul Williams, uh, the tackle of, um, I can't think of the, one of the Reds locks, maybe it was Ryan Smith, um, that he, I thought he got, did a stellar job in getting that one right. And then there was one that was probably a, a little bit similar. And uh, I guess we're now we're getting into this area where we're trying to see, you know, so much of it is, as you alluded to previously, is around the, the tackler making that drop in body height. Um, and if you're not going to do that, you're going to run the risk uh, even if it's a head clash like we've seen multiple times now, um, if there are mitigating factors that um, you're going to be in some trouble. But you're certainly confused by that first one from Ben O'Keefe. Um, I thought to, to have it reviewed and then clearly show there was head contact, shoulder on head, um, albeit glancing, that that was, uh, had to be at least a penalty. But um, I guess uh, what do you and I know? Um, mate, let's go in a little bit deeper. Let's backtrack then to, to Friday night with the Reds. Um, 
you know, it was a weird game. And, and I think, you know, it's we're waxing lyrical about what we've seen for the rest of the round and, and you know, the contest that we saw. And even the two games on Friday night, as you mentioned, off the top were, you know, gripping contests. But um, did the Reds, uh, did they take in the wrong game plan? Maybe not take in the wrong game plan, but did they not adapt as the game went on? It was, uh, it was a bit of a kick-a-thon. Um, clearly, they're missing James O'Connor, but they had enough ball uh, to win this one, and, and the league changed hands a couple of times. But um, in the end, they, they just fell short, and, and it feels like the momentum is just being sucked out of their season. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to describe it, the momentum being sucked out. You know, a couple of defeats in a row, matches that they were right in the contest that they're not able to close out. You know, that comes down to decision-makers in key positions, doesn't it? And you look at... No, you know, experience ten option there. Um, oh, the game plan's a funny one, and I, I think the game plan comes down to the fact that there they don't actually back their number ten to be able to make the right decisions. So you know, if in doubt, kick, look for territory, um, challenge in the pin kick contest, um, and a really good you know line speed and defence. There's some of the things that I think the Queensland Reds coaching structure would have gone. Well, how do we how do we win this game? And when, when Tate sees an opportunity in opening, go. Um, and, and we see that Tate continually. Um, I, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken to a few people recently around um, the Reds and, and what's happening there. And you've got to see it in the wider context of this whole Brad Bourne debate. Um, you compare it to uh, taking a step back at the moment. You look at the Reds and their roster, and it's been a superb roster for a few years, particularly since 2020 the return of James O'Connor, the arrival of James O'Connor. Um, then they had an Isaac Lucas who was coming through as a real number 10 option as well. But where's the ceiling of the Reds at the moment and where's the ceiling, say, of the Waratahs? Waratahs two years younger. I would think that the Waratahs' ceiling at the moment looks much, much bigger than the Reds'. Right across the board, the Reds are extremely reliant on McDermott, O'Connor, and Taniela Tupo. You take out a couple of those guys and, and they don't look the same. The Waratahs, Michael Hooper, he's missed the first half of the year. He's slotted in seamlessly. He's added a lot. His experience was missed in the last 12 minutes in the game on the weekend. But, you know, if you, you take out a couple of their hookers, the linchpins where the set piece starts and stops and, and still the Waratahs look like they're adjusting the Reds at the moment are so heavily on those guys. And I, my understanding is that Lawson Crichton, the number 10, he's been around for a while. He'd spent some time up in Panasonic with Robbie Deans there. He's come back and he's had some injuries. But up until the week that he plays number 10, um, you know, a week and a half ago against the Chiefs, he had not spent a second training in the number 10 jersey for the Reds at training. You know, and then suddenly he's catapulted into that position for a game against the Kiwis. What does that say about the management, the direction, the um, the depth, the the vision of the Reds when there's not enough players getting time in the saddle in key positions? It's something that really haunted Daryl Gibson's time at the Waratahs, where they were incredibly reliant on a few people, namely Bernard Foley too obsessed with getting wins and, and fearful of losing that you can't actually slot players in and out to not only keep them fresh, but secondly, to grow the overall depth. 
Yeah, you're right, man. And of course, Friday night they did lose uh, Tenniel at Tupu. I think about midway through the first half with a calf injury, so a significant loss there. Uh, Asiata had some real uh, wobbles at lineout time. Um, one particularly terrible throw at one point, um, but they just you know this is going to be the difference between they're going to be in a real scrap now. You would think probably with the Chiefs for that that last um, that fourth home final spot, you would think. Um, they've got to arrest it quickly. Uh, but it just feels, you know, James O'Connor might be back a, a week sooner. I think the talk is he could be back for the Blues game, which would obviously be a, a huge in. But, um, yeah, they, they've just hit a bit of a wall. And, and I just wonder, you know, how much that 17-0 um, capitulation last week against the Hurricanes is really going to come back to, to hurt them. Um, because we saw, you know, the Brumbies have a similar moment of, I guess um, a challenging moment. Nick White referred to it uh, against the Hurricanes yesterday when when a bounce pass try, sorry, a bounce pass resulted in a try to Celesi Rayasi, the Hurricanes winger. And quite often, as they have a knack of doing these bounce passes, and at that point, you know, it could have been a heads down moment for the Brumbies, but they just switched back on and, and really finished off that game in comprehensive fashion. So, as again, as you're talking about, you know, ceilings or, or sliding doors moments. Um, you know, that I uh, reflect on last week for the Reds and think 17-0 up, that, that's really going to be the moment uh, that uh, if they if this season falls away, which it looks like it could, they're really going to come back to regret. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the Brumbies then on, on Sunday. Christy, um, as I mentioned there, uh, a, a pretty even first half, really, with a couple of yellow cards, one each um, to the Hurricanes and the Brumbies. Um, but They've just got that confidence about them, the Brumbies, as Nick White referred to, as I said, um, the belief that they, you know, in the way they're playing the game, um, obviously their, their driving mall is is so, so dominant and it has been for some time. But, um, you know, also the, the try uh, scored by, finished off by one of your your favourites, Jerome Brown, um, just a, a beautiful bit of rugby uh, and just a, a real... Um, commanding second half performance, I thought. Um, and, and Nardi Sevilla in his post-match um, press conference interview said as much that um, you know they were just they were just too clinical and and too you know uh, too commanding, too ruthless. The Brumbies there in the, the second half, and you know they're only one point back of the Blues um, in second spot. There, they've only lost the one game, and uh, you know I, I don't think it's too much to suggest that they can. You know they certainly look like a, a semi-final team, and. And if they finish, you know, top two and get a home final, home semi-final, sorry, they they could go all the way to the big dance. Um, a really, really strong effort in Canberra. Yeah, massive. And, you know, how, when's the last time, Sam, that you saw a bench come off, um, well, players come off the bench for an Australian side and actually add to the game, um, add to the tempo and pick it up a notch? Can you, can you remember? I can't, man. It's an excellent point. I'm reading Paul Cully's... Uh, usual Sunday five in the Herald and he referring to have the Brumbies found their bomb squad. Now it might not quite be a, quite be a bomb squad uh, as yet, but um, having got the best that we saw Scotty CEO come back last week and play his best game in, in years. I was just looking at him yesterday. He looks fit. He looks lean and um, him tearing on the ball last week. Uh, so to be able to have, you know, give James Slipper a couple of weeks to, to come off the bench. Uh, we've spoken about their depth at hooker. Uh, you know, ad nauseum on this podcast over the last couple of years. Um, and then you've got a guy like like Luke Rema, who is an absolute breakdown weapon. He's yeah. just watching him go from breakdown to breakdown, not having a, a crack at each one, but putting himself in a position to 
to at least have the the choice to go in and try and get on the ball. And he's just making a habit of, of coming on at, um, you know, 60, 65 minutes and, and winning vital turnovers or, or getting the penalty decision from referees because he's got great position over the ball. Um, you know, obviously they've got depth that uh, with Ryan Lonergan probably didn't have his greatest game coming on at halfback yesterday. But, um, yeah, Nick Frost wasn't playing yesterday. The two locks otherwise, Darcy Swain continues to impress uh, with his mall defence. Um, from 1 to 23 and beyond, the Brumbies have got genuine, genuine depth. Yeah, you talk about Reimar. I think that really first came to our attention against the Waratahs about, well, who knows, six weeks might, might have been longer. But he, um, you're right, and it's and it's massive to have someone be able to to get on the ball uh, still, you know, because that's when the game loosens up typically. So to have someone have that ability to stifle a defence and then turn it into a, a weapon is, is huge. You know, these are the sorts of games from Scotty Seo that, get him back in the test picture. Um, he might not play, and I'm not suggesting that he, that he will or should, but at, at this, you know, you're going to see that for longer periods. But these are the sorts of guys, times where you go, well, this is an experienced player who's actually, you know, coming back, showing what he's made of and will add to a squad when he comes back because he's a liked, liked player. Um, the other point, and, and I'm not sure if I've made it previously, but I think it's it's important to note that championships aren't won in the first eight weeks. You know, they're won in the second half. You know, even in other codes like rugby league, the last time the Broncos won a competition, they did that in the NRL off the back of a really strong finish where they came home with a wet sail. Um, the Brumbies, their form was indifferent for a long time. The chopping and changing of players is... You struggle with continuity once you do that. And we're starting to see why maybe that was the benefit now. Maybe this is experience in McKellar and Laurie Fisher, knowing that they can trust their players to, you know, if there is an injury later on, we've now got a guy that's got ample time starting and knows what it's all about. Really, really encouraging performance. Also, another thing, Sunday afternoon footy, how good. Um. You know, for some reason, maybe the penny is dropped, or maybe it's just because it's the the Australian New Zealand sides that are playing just the two of them, and you know, clearly the, the Pacific nations too. But and it's all in the same time zone. But refreshing to see some some Sunday afternoon footy because it's it's really been a point of difference for codes like AFL and rugby league who have that empty space, that fun space where you can bring your kids and hopefully in the sun well i was thinking this yesterday chrissy and i'll put this question to to ben kimber head of sport head of sorry head of sport at stan sport um perhaps now that the actual rating side of things stan sport are more around building subscription numbers right and there's perhaps not the the actual focus on uh actual match ratings on on streaming services because you're not selling any ads during the actual matches so why not have a Sunday afternoon fixture every week? Because that yesterday is just the greatest, you know, supporter of, of why that should be the case. Um, the sun was out in Canberra. We know how bloody cold it gets down there um, virtually from here on out. And Nick White, in his post-match interview, talking how it had cooled off already, he had the big jacket on. But, you know, two o'clock kickoffs in the sun. Um, why can't we have more of them now? Because I, I don't see how... You know, we, we need to have – it's not so insistent on having ratings. Um, obviously, the Saturday night 
gem game is is different on on free to air television, clearly. But um, you know, can we not have more five o'clock kickoffs on a Saturday evening and, and two o'clock on a on a Sunday afternoon? So Ben Kimber, if you're listening, um, mate, perhaps you can uh, you can give us a little bit of uh, insight on that one. Um, Christy, uh, we better just touch briefly uh, on both the Rebels and the Force. Uh, Rebels. A really, you know, I guess entertaining game of footy against the Moana Pacifica on Saturday night. And I want to give a big shout out to to Carter Gordon, who produced a, a fantastic effort late in the game. Uh, he's had a bit of a an indifferent year when he was looking like being the, the number 10, but um, Kevin Foote went back to Matt Tamua. Matt Tamua, obviously, now having a head knock and, and Carter back in the 10 jersey. But there was one big effort late in the game where it was still very much in the balance. Uh, Moana player uh, heading for the, the corner. I can't quite think who it was. Um, but uh, Gordon busting a gut from a good 30 metres away to get over and make the last-ditch attempt to whack the ball out with his arm when it looked like being a, a certain try uh, was lost forward and it was yeah virtually saved five points, maybe seven. A, a huge effort for him and and just a good win for a Rebel side that um, you know it was, was certainly put up a good fight against the Crusaders last week for... For 40 minutes probably just lacked a bit of class in in some areas but uh a badly needed and, and deserving win on uh, on saturday night yeah oh indeed they're, they're the games that you have to win aren't they um interesting about carter gordon that he probably puts out one of his best performances or best performances this year the week or so after matt tamua unfortunately goes down with yet another concussion like does that tell you a little bit about the psychology of him or the club, the fact that he was allowed to play with a bit more confidence within himself more when he didn't have either Matt Tamula at 12 or perhaps inside him or indeed on the bench, which is what we saw um, earlier in the year to begin uh, uh, with, with Gordon at 10 and, and, and failing to deliver it early on. Um, you know, he's got a lot of things that you look at a 10 and you go physically good, strong, massive raking kick, can pass left and right, um, can take the ball to the line. He, we've seen those sorts of things happen. So it's really interesting that he managed to front up to Liverpool when Matt Tamor wasn't there. You know, Matt's future is a really interesting one. Like, I still understand that if, if he was to find a club overseas, particularly somewhere in Japan, that no one would stand in his way. He's one of the really liked guys in Australian rugby, but he's on massive coin um, at the moment and uh, part of the previous kind of Wallabies regime to, to get him back and then, you know, to, to stay on more recently perhaps. But um, a big one for the Rebels, you know, it, it, it's shown what happens when you get your numbers back, doesn't it? And it shows for sides like the Rebels and perhaps the Force or, um, you know, maybe we're even seeing at the Reds now that you lose a few people and it's really difficult for these Australian sides to come back to regularly compete. You don't often say the same thing about New Zealand teams. And that's where when people talk about has the gap closed in Australian rugby, I still don't know necessarily if it has. It just means that the guys that are on the park and fit at the moment are now two, three years into their careers um, following the previous Rugby World Cup where a lot of players left and, and that, you know, some of the, the top-tier younger players, the guys like the Lucases and the Hawkins who are, were around, unfortunately left too. So, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question. Has Australia closed the gap? If you look up um, or Google the term a gallant defeat, do you imagine that 
a picture of the Western Force might come up uh, as the first image on, on Google Images because it just feels like this is becoming the hallmark of this team. We know there's going to be change next year with, with Simon Cron coming in to coach, but, um, geez, you got to feel for them because so yeah. often they're in these games um, and just perhaps lack that little bit of finishing quality or that little bit of X factor to get over the line, and it was certainly the case on, on Friday night. Yeah, and I watched the entire game of that. You know, it finishes close to midnight in the end, or actually just after midnight, given that the, um, you know, there was 26 phases at the end of, and, you know, it goes for an extra couple of minutes. And that was, I think, the case in the first half too, with both sides wanting to play. Um, oh, it, you know, it, it must drive the, the supporters in the Western Force crazy. Um, I think that's the mentality that Simon Cron is going to bring. Um, when he arrives there, you know, you're striving for excellence. You're not content with just being run of the mill. Um, they, they had so many moments there to close it out. You think about the missed goal kicks there from, um, from, from Quenzel, Bayer Quenzel, um, frustrating moments. None of them easy kicks either, you know, quite a few of those close to the touchline or, or teammates in, but you, you hope to know one of them and then, then therefore it's within the three points um, you can go for a penalty or you can work for a field goal. Like just not enough know-how that you've got to keep it tighter before spreading it wide. There was probably a little bit too much end-side-to-side to side going on there. Um, at no stage did they get some real penetration and it came off, obviously off a, um, a line-out. At least they got the line-out right and they managed to win that ball, but really painful dispiriting kind of loss there. Hopefully they front up again because that's what you, you need for them not to feel sorry for themselves but to actually learn from that. And and for a, a bloke like Tim Sampson who hasn't had a great couple of months, um, there, at least he saw his side really fighting for him. Before we wrap up this round completely, I, mean, I guess it's pointed to say that this weekend in isolation really means very little. It's about going across to New Zealand now and and backing up, um, you know, whether it be the Waratahs and the Brumbies, backing up these these victories on the weekend with with wins in New Zealand for the for the Reds and the Rebels, the same thing to try and, you know, push as hard as they can to, to really challenge New Zealand uh, because it just can't finish this season if it's going to have a not, any knock-on effect, you know, and we know previously that uh, how much um, Super Rugby form for Australian teams means for the Wallabies, um, but if it's going to have any real, genuine, tangible effect, then these have just got to be rolled in to more victories throughout the, the remaining four weeks of the regular season because, um, you know, one one weekend doesn't make a winter. Uh, I think I've adapted that from somewhere. But um, from one it, hot day doesn't make a summer. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, but it feels particularly apt in this scenario. Um, we can jump up and down and say how good they were. Um, over 24 hours on the weekend, but unless they go over and, and back it up in New Zealand, at least in some instances, and and if you the Waratahs, Reds, and and Brumbies clearly, you know, continue to push for for victories on on home soil, and by extension, the Force and the Rebels, of course, as well. Um, that uh, the weekend's efforts are really going to amount to nothing unless they go forward and and continue to play with such conviction. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of matches next weekend where you go, they are. Must wins. The Waratahs beating Moana Pacifica was a must win over in Auckland. Yep. Um, and then you think about, you know, Brumbies are playing the Chiefs in Waikato, tough match. The Rebels are playing the Blues at Eden Park after a giant scare last week. Another tough match. 
the Fools hosting the Crusaders off the back of, you know, a defeat, a rare defeat for the Crusaders. Tough game. So you go far out. That's, you know, you potentially could be 0-3. and you, you hope the Brumbies will compete, potentially steal it there. But the Waratahs need a win. And I think the Reds circled this Highlanders match and go, we need to win this. Um, this is our most important week of the season right now. It's not adding beating the Brumbies, you know, at home six weeks ago. It's right now, front up. Um, huge, huge game because having one from four between those sides um, doesn't reflect well, uh, particularly when, you you know, you've played all the games previously in Australia. Two from five, you, you know, it's, it's 40%, but you go, we can still... We can still challenge. Um, big, big, big weekend ahead. And because it, it's going to continue, hopefully, a big year ahead. We, we touched upon it earlier. We thought, I think we flagged it, but the Wallabies, uh, you know, their season is now pretty much set in stone with what's to come. Um, news today, confirmation today that a couple of historic really fixtures. First time Sam, the Wallabies are going to be playing in Adelaide at the Adelaide Oval since 2004. The first time the Wallabies will be playing the All Blacks since 2010 in Melbourne, and the the first time um, a midweek let us know since 1994. So, kind of significant fixtures, things that are exciting for the international runway to a World Cup, um, and games that you can take across Australia and go. This is the Wallabies. This is what they stand for, and this is what rugby stands for. You know, top tier international rugby. Yeah, the Thursday night Melbourne fixture in, in particular looks, you know, like a, a real, I want to call it a, a stroke of genius. I think it's more out of necessity than, than anything else, given the timing that it is in Melbourne of would be, I believe, preliminary final week in the AFL. So you don't want to have that on an AFL and be have a, have a prelim final at the MCG across town going on at the same time. But um, having a Thursday night, you can kind of almost sell it to, Melbourneians uh, effectively as a you know what a, a festival of sport if you like uh, over yeah. over three or four days and say so come along with the Bledisloe on Thursday night and roll that into a Friday night prelim and a Saturday night prelim then that's a pretty good seventy two hours of of sport if you're uh, you know you're a Melbourneian you you uh, you believe that you truly are the sporting capital of the world then you know get along to, to Marvel Stadium on the Thursday night and and uh, and put your money where the mouth where your mouth is. Um, the Adelaide one clearly uh, against the Springboks, um, clearly a move from the, the South Australian government, so I think, to put their hand up and say, we want World Cup fixtures. Um, they've got the Adelaide Oval there, of course, um, had the refurb, must be about 10 years ago now. Um, we've seen, obviously, big AFL games there, the showdown famously, Port and, and the Crows, um, cricket test matches. I uh, went to the Danny Green and Anthony Mundine fight there a few years ago. Of course, yeah. So so exciting to see this game uh, go there and, and you would hope that it would be well supported as well. And I guess, you know, as we say, that's the, I guess, the pulling power of, of a World Cup, not just um, internationally, but domestically as well as you get these state governments pitching up and it's all got to be good money for uh, for the, uh, sorry, the Rugby Australia coffers. Yeah, and having not been to South Australia, personally, it's quite an exciting idea to go to Adelaide and, and hopefully check out um we, we better tie that into a trip down the Barossa, mate. What do you think? We can do the podcast from down uh, McLaren Vale. Heck of an idea. Yeah, I'm sure that there'll be a few takers come on to that one. But that's, I think that's great for rugby in the country. Oh, one of the unfortunate aspects about 
Australia in the sense of how big the actual country itself is from an um, you know, four, 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 odd, maybe four, a bit more than four k's, four thousand k's across from you know Sydney to Perth or so. Is that you've got to cater to a massive audience over a you know a massive, massive nation. Um, you know that doesn't happen in England or, or or New Zealand, perhaps where it might take only a couple of hours to either drive to get there or catch a train in England down from Newcastle or up from you know wherever you might be. So I think it's. You know, it's unfortunate that you can't always have a home of rugby in the sense that Twickenham is or Eden Park is for New Zealand where most of the tests are played there and a lot of people can come to it. That can't be the case in Australia, unfortunately, because as much as it might help to play most games in Brisbane where they've got a great record, it just can't happen. Um, but you're right about the, uh, the the South Australia putting up their hands for World Cup fixtures. Financially, it's a, it's a big thing. Um, you know, Queensland's obviously hosted the TRC last year, you know, a real, um, you know, what was it, six tests or so that they might have had up there. So, yeah, maybe there wasn't quite the appetite. Perhaps they got a little bit complacent as well, thinking that we might not need to put up as much money because we expect it to be the case. But I think a good move and and um, playing at Adelaide Oval was going to be great. Um, it's a... By all reports, an awesome place to watch sport full stop. So um, another circular oval um, venue, that'll be interesting and, and maybe it keeps people from World Rugby as well as Rugby Australia an idea of what, what it would look like for a test match there. Yeah, exciting year ahead. Uh, of course, before we get there, we've got hopefully some uh, some more exciting weeks of, of Super Rugby Pacific to come. Uh, as we mentioned uh, We'll discuss it at length there. A fantastic weekend, but it's only going to count if the Aussie side's going and back it up. But uh, be interesting to hear what Dave Rennie has to say shortly about um, his reflections on the weekend. I'm sure he'll be trying to keep a lid on things, but um, certainly one to, to chase up this afternoon uh, on ESPN or equally across uh, Christie's coverage at Fox Sports. Uh, mate, thank you very much for the time again. Uh, it's always nice to be uh, talking uh, after a positive weekend. So. Um, enjoy this week and, uh, and hopefully a few more Aussie wins to come in round 12. Yeah, great to join. And, and look, just you know, those that, that like rugby, mention it to your mates again. Mention it to your family members. Just remind them that it's been, been shown, been, it's on coverage. Um, it's these sorts of weeks where you need to capitalise. And if, you, if you're the marketing pigeon at Rugby Australia, you know, really... Has, get- has there's a point, mate. I did hear actually one of my mates said that... Um, He'd actually seen uh, the Wallabies England series uh, advertised on three different mediums last week. So I think the pigeon has been busy. Yeah, well, more of it. More of it is badly needed. So anyway, enjoy a great weekend and, and hopefully back it up again. As ever, give us a shout out on social media. Uh, anything we've discussed today or anything you would like to hear us uh, talk about in the future. And uh, yeah, thanks for enjoying the pod and uh, we'll talk again soon.